This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. I'm here today with Hugo Bedford, CEO of JM Finn. Hugo, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning, John. Very good to see you. So we've seen pretty huge consolidation in the UK wealth market. You seem to believe that tie-ups such as Bruin and RBC are a negative for both staff and clients. Why do you think that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that actually they're not always negative, uh, but um, and certainly those involved would argue against that. But generally, M&A does create some uncertainty, both for staff and clients. And, I mean, you'd hope that corporates would learn, but I suspect the motives behind some of these consolidations are a meaningful addition to the bottom line. And generally, the two ways that they're going to go about that are taking costs out of the business uh, or cross-selling their products. And I started in the city uh, back in the early 90s, uh, just after Big Bang, and we saw a, a rash of corporate takeovers, um, including the company I was working for, James Capel, and uh, which was merged into HSBC along with Midland. And here we are 30 years later, uh, history repeating itself. And I think if you, if you in answer your question, there are two, two stakeholders here, the clients and the staff. Um, and it's interesting, I've had uh, a, a lot of clients that I know who are with some of these uh, uh, companies involved with the corporate takeovers. And the one thing they've been asking me is, should I be worried? Which I think is a good question. And generally, I've said, no, sit where you are, you know, uh, uh, give this time, make sure that you're happy with any changes that come come through. I think broadly, though, for clients, the things that they should be looking for are any loss in service. Um, and I think our experience is that clients don't necessarily uh, demonstrate that they're unhappy with the service uh, until it comes to a point that, that it rears its head. And, and that the, the important thing here is that that can manifest itself in inaction, which is detrimental to the client. If they don't uh, take investment decisions, if they don't look at their planning. Um, so, so we always encourage early action to make sure that, you know, they at least have peace of mind with alternatives. Um, and then for staff, I think, you know, what tends to happen with this is a bigger focus on new business. And, you know, we... We love new business and we, uh, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on new business, but we'll always put the existing client first and we won't sacrifice uh, service for growth uh, in essence. So other things, distraction for new managers if they've got new targets. Um, and you know, I think smaller companies do allow uh, staff to play to their to their strengths. I mean, th- the argument from the other side will be yeah. that they, you've got phenomenal scale now. Of course. Um, and that could be a real advantage for, for clients. Maybe you have much better research capacity. You, you know, you can um, buy into mandates that might have cheaper costs, for example. Um, how do the smaller firms like yours then compete with these behemoth companies? Well, I think I think scale is is a good argument uh, in itself, but size can be unworldly, and 
you know, bigger is not always better. I do think that you, you do need scale in terms of governance, uh, you know, your compliance setup. I think research, actually, you're going to have too much research sometimes. So um, I think, yes, where do you draw the line? Is it a 10 billion under management? Is it a 20 billion? But when you get to the size, the average size of companies that they're reaching, I don't believe that the uh, economies of scale really feed through to the benefit of the client at that kind of level. I think it is more to the bottom line. Yeah, but perhaps not the client, but the sustainability of, of the company. It's that scale makes them potentially more profitable in that sense. Of course, yeah, and it it it, it puts a bigger financial uh, backing to a business, um, which in this regulatory environment is is a strong case. Yeah. Without a doubt. What about JM Finn? Are you looking to buy up smaller wealth firms? I mean, we've seen that with the likes of Kingswood recently. They've been sort of chucking businesses into a shopping trolley seemingly is that something that you would consider doing uh we i mean we, we would always look to acquire and take advantage of what's going on in terms of consolidation and whilst we will and have, have looked at a number of opportunities prices need to be right and i'm not sure they're they're quite in our scale at the moment and the fit needs to be right both in terms of values and goals you know to make sure those are aligned um and we actually saw this with our majority shareholder when they took a stake in us 11 years ago. The partners then didn't sell to the highest bidder. They sold to the company that was the best fit, which was us. You know, recognizing the value of, of offering tailored client solutions, focusing on client service, and a belief that the investment manager should have full accountability. So and You say prices aren't right at the moment. I mean, we've seen in the listed space yeah. um, share prices have pretty much tanked over, over the year. Yeah. How long do you think that's going to take for it to sort of feed into the private markets? I, that, that's a, it's a very good question. I think you'll always have a delay uh, in, in, uh, in that feed through in terms of uh, price uh, recognition through in the private market. Uh, talking to people I know in the private equity world, uh, things have definitely tightened up in terms of uh, interest rates moving high and borrowing costs and also you know, th there's some true people there and they're going to sit back and wait on the sidelines whilst this plays out. So, and just to pick up in terms of other other firms uh, and Jamfin acquiring, um, what we won't do with, what we don't want to do is join the arms race for IFAs. Uh, you know, we wouldn't rule out buying a stake in a business at some time, but it's not our priority. And, you know, we made, we made the decision to build out our wealth planning uh, in 2016 within the firm to make it needs-driven rather than product-driven. So a lot of the acquisitions that you've seen have been uh, advice uh, IFA-based, and that's something that I think some of the price is being paid for that. You know, there, there may mm. be, I think, the once you actually see the full integration and uh, the cost that comes with that, uh, there may be some challenges. But look, I mean, it's not for me to comment yeah. on other people, but it's just not something that we're... So it's not just price there. There's integration challenges as well. Why, why is an IFA business difficult in your eyes to integrate? Well, I think people assume that the, the loyalty will immediately of, of the underlying client will immediately transfer over to the acquiring company. But uh, it's the biggest cliche in the business, but, but it is a relationship uh, industry that we have here. And uh, a lot of those RFA individual relationships, but particularly the smaller ones, the clients are with them because they enjoy the person that they're engaging with. And if that gets taken out, you, you, I, I just don't think you can assume 
straight away that the client's going to be happy with you know a new name uh, and possibly a new manager. I mean, now they can they can they can manage that integration, and I'm sure they keep the same people on. Uh, but but I think it's more of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with all this consolidation in this industry going on at the moment, what opportunities are you seeing for your business directly? I think I think I mean I mentioned that we you know we would look and we have looked at, at various businesses um, and so we'll continue to do that we we do we like to think of ourselves as an emerging major and we've put a lot of work in over the last five years to, and particularly in our governance um, so we we feel that we've got the you know the building blocks but as I said earlier we're, we're not we're not going to grow for growth's sake we want to grow responsibly and in a in a measured manner. So, so really, it's about for us sticking to what we know we're good at, and uh, that is picking up teams. By the way, on an acquisition acquisition basis, so we, we've always done that. That's how I joined. I was an investment manager myself. That's how I joined mm. the firm fifteen years ago, and um, but but really, it's concentrating on what we do well, uh, which is offering a genuinely p- personalised service, sure. and. Yeah. So, are teams themselves more attractive than businesses in, in, in your eyes at the moment? Sort of going for staff rather rather than individual businesses. I believe so. Yeah. I th- I think that uh, I think the cost, both in energy uh, and also price, uh, is is such that buying a company, there are very few companies that fit in. Uh, and uh, and you know we've talked about this before culturally that you can just align them into the business so quickly so we we, we tend to pick out teams that can drop in and uh, you know build out I have to say acquisition that's our inorganic growth strategy but all mm. our organic growth strategy is is where our key focus is and that is about building business out from our existing client base. And are you looking to continue hiring staff over the next twelve months or so? It's obviously looking pretty pretty challenging times over over the next year or so, and we're in them already. Mm. Um, you know, is, spending more on staff is is, is going to be a challenge for you. Are, are you going to yeah. be able to do that? And when you, I mean, I guess one has to differentiate between are you saying in terms of investment managers or staff generally. A bit of both, really. Okay. A bit, but, so, but, but primarily, investment managers; those are probably going to be your your most expensive exactly. hires. Because right? staff, we're not we're not yeah. looking to add to necessarily. Yeah. Uh, we feel that we're we're making really good good ground without spending a fortune in terms yeah. of digitalization of the business and and uh, our operations. This is a this is a golden opportunity for us, and actually, it's no surprise that we've had more inquiries from uh, other investment managers of different houses at the moment than we've had probably in 10 years. Um, so, no, it's an opportunity. With this consolidation, mm-hmm. it comes back to, should I be worried? That the, the client's thinking that, but some of the investment managers are thinking that as well. Now, we're, we're, not, we're not going out there and aggressively calling people because I think in all these situations, a lot of people are taking time, taking stock to see whether they the next move and and whether the business that they're in is still the home that they feel is right for their clients. But we just need to make sure that people are aware that we're ready for the right kind of people with the right business who can who can actually join for the longer term uh, to come and talk to us. So why do you think you're getting so many inquiries right now? Because I think we, we do... Um, well, I think it's the consolidation in the first right. place that, you know, there are these events that are... Uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, they create the uncertainty. So someone in their career, they're going to be thinking, is this the place 
that I joined? Is this the place that's best for my clients? Uh, so you, that's that's the initial um, change, obviously. And I think uh, I, I, so. I think that that's the key factor. I think that in terms of JMFin itself, I think that we uh, there are other businesses, of course, but I think we do stand out as a place where we give some autonomy to the investment manager. We still have the connection, which is fundamental to our model, that we want the investment manager to be accountable, because that's where the trust gets built with the client, mm. uh, and that connection with the end client. And I think there are fewer and fewer places um, as, the, as, as, as the industry, particularly at the top end, uh, becomes more and more commoditized. Which firm would you say you've had the most inquiries from? <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I think we, we, we've had a broad spread of, uh, of interest from uh, you know, like-minded yeah. businesses. Let's focus in a bit more on, on sort of tough um, environment at the moment. Yeah. Um, do you think you're going to struggle to onboard clients over the next few years? I mean, it looks like a lot of clients are going into cash at the moment and yeah. faith in markets is pretty much at an all-time low. Is it going to be a struggle to get newer AUM into the business? I, I Absolutely. Right now, people are definitely sitting on their hands. Um, but I think that uh, we've seen this in the past when you've actually had uh, a, a quite uh, sizable uh, amount of volatility going through the business, uh, sorry, through the industry and through markets. You do get people quite understandably assessing uh, where they are, what they're achieving with the with the firm that they're at, and of course the main piece here is in terms of wealth advice, and people need it more than ever at the moment. And you know the the, the I saw a YouGov poll the other day saying that um, the the amount of people taking professional financial advice uh, it was taken last year for the previous two years has dropped from ten percent to seven percent, and Probably with the cost of living crisis coming through, you know that's going to reduce, and I, you know, understandably, people are going to spend any less. So, but at the same time, it's actually the most important time, particularly with the owners falling more on the individual to uh, provide for themselves in the future, mm. for them to be taking financial advice, and that's where the wealth planning s side of the business is is really uh, leading the charge in terms of um, uh, us being able to grow AUM. And and the point here is that. We, we didn't we didn't overlay this. We didn't force people to do this. We built it, as I said, on a needs-driven basis, so that investment managers could work with them, understand them, see the benefits, much more sustainable longer term. Mm. So now they're using them, and we're having to hire in that space because it's it's our lead. Do, do you think maybe the fee model for typical wealth and and IFA firms is putting people off at the moment, maybe sort of that percentage of, of your assets rather than maybe a fixed fee is, is putting off. I mean, I know not, not every firm does that, but, but you know, that, that might be a, a deterrent. I think you're absolutely right, John. The, the, one, of the, one of the key concerns, I think, for investors is the idea that getting advice somehow ties them in forever. And um, again, I'm going to talk about JM Finn, but that's exactly why we don't go down. We haven't gone down the bundle fee rates because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to take some advice at the beginning of the year, uh, unless something has substantially changed in your personal circumstances by, you know, the next year, then there's no, there's, there's no or very little value in charging for advice the following year. And so I think that model is going to come under question. And we, we very much have built out our wealth planning that is done on a 
um, unless it gets very complex, mm. you know, that it is done on a uh, an advice basis rather than charging one and a half, two percent a year. So how, how does yours work? You, you charge a, a flat fee per per consultation? So no, we we the 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 first thing we say is that you can have a, a meeting without any costs. If it turns out that there is a pension, and if it's complex and there's DB pension or whatever that needs to be tried, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into yeah. that, and so we'll quote and we can give a fixed price for that, uh, and and that allows a client to assess, right, this is the, <laughs> this is my mini cost benefit an analysis here. I'm happy to go ahead because the potential benefits are da da da. Mm. So so we will we will make sure complete transparency, which is you know, where, where we're seeing on the consumer duty, which we think is right, is is that the client can see what the cost is. Um, and then if people do want an ongoing review each year, we'll do that, um, but we'll do it at a low level. We're not going to charge, I think some of the bundle fee uh, rates, I think, are, I, in my view, are quite hard to justify. Fair enough. Um, what about margin pressure over the next two years? Obviously, in, in more challenging circumstances, your profit yeah. margin is likely to be hit. Um, yeah. Are you expecting... It's sort of fly off a cliff edge at this point. I, I mean, you've got two sides of it. You've got <laughs> revenue and costs. I think that, um, broadly speaking, our model allows us to control our, our, our uh, a large two-thirds of our cost is related um, to an area that we can control quite well and that is not inflation-based. Where, where we're seeing uh, inflation c come through is... You know, strangely, well, it comes through in marketing because even putting on an event, I mean, the, the, you know, the increases there are amazing. Producing, um, uh, we, we've got a, a journal that we put out, prospects, you know, the cost of that has gone up. So, again, it's, it's everything should be done online, but, but inevitably you're still going to have some, uh, some uh, old-fashioned collateral, as it were, in the system. So those kind of costs, entertaining, all this kind of stuff, that's, that's a big cross cost pressure, but actually it doesn't form the fundamental part of our costs. In terms of revenue, that's it. it we, we're, we're a cyclical business. We're always going to be dependent on markets, and, and so that's a challenge. Um, what you always hope to achieve is that growth in the business, organic growth, outweighs uh, any, mm. any fall in markets. But we have to accept that we've had a few years of good markets. We, we will have a, a period. We already have had a period of AUM falling back. But the main thing is you continue to build and try and close that gap in terms of AUM. Yeah. We've spoken about sort of consolidation amongst big players, sort of mm. M&A activity merging together. What about some of the, the big tech firms, perhaps in the States, the, the likes of Amazon or even, or even Apple getting into wealth management and uh, seeing that perhaps the UK wealth management market is quite attractive. Uh, it, does that worry you at all? No, I think it's, I think it's great. You know, I think that uh, uh, the democratization of wealth management, uh, particularly with some of these tech firms, uh, has to be good for society. I think it's great. Um, it encourages younger generations to invest. And uh, the sooner they start, the better. And, and if they're able to start with smaller sums of money, it allows them to learn. Um, and I think, actually, it's really, it's really positive as well that some of these providers are, like ourselves, are focusing on pensions, uh, helping to educate uh, the importance of planning for retirement. Um, that being said, I think not everyone's needs could be met through the latest, latest algorithm. Mm. And the evidence does show that, that investors still feel they want a relationship with their manager before they can entrust them um, looking after their hard-earned wealth. And trust takes time. So, and that, so that, that, That's a fair point and probably 
very fair now. But what happens in a decade where AI technology gets so sure. sophisticated sure. that perhaps the personal touch isn't as valuable to the next generation of clients? That that's I, You're absolutely right. And that's got to be uh, the longer term trend. I think that you will still, you're right at the moment because of markets, and we've seen that, that, that particularly when they become more volatile, uh, sectors diverge, uh, they really want someone to recognize that. And again, the consumer duty saying that, you know, you shouldn't just chew them to model and forget about them. You've got to keep talking to them, make sure their needs are being met. Um, I think, though, that you will always have particularly, and it's no surprise that people are moving into the wealth wealth planning space. That's the, the, you know, the, uh, the big shift there is that uh, need to becoming more complex around planning and AI will get there. But at the same time, I think that there's still going to be for quite some time uh, the, the benefit of having face-to-face -face conversations. Now, what you've got to make sure is that you get the best of both worlds from a business point of view, that you have a platform that allows investors to uh, engage, interact and onboard seamlessly and digitally so mm -hmm. that the, the younger generation and you know this is obviously one of our key focuses is making sure that we can um, it's it's an annuity business to some degree we're the, no different from other people yeah. make sure that we're there so that we have uh, the offering from a technology point of view that is right and uh, attracts the younger clients to yeah. and I suppose marketing spend as well I mean uh, these these tech firms have cash on, on on their balance sheets that they can chuck a load of money into marketing where, where the, it might be a bit more of a struggle for you to do that in such a widespread fashion. Yeah, but we can we can also, uh, we can focus our marketing. And again, uh, as I said earlier, we're, uh, our key focus is still existing clients because that's our potential. We can, uh, if, if we can carry on getting the kind of referral rates that we have already from our existing, that's a, that's that's fundamental to us. In terms of going after new business, yes, we'll we'll do that. But um, that that's that's not going to drive. We're not going to take on the platform. And I think the platforms, as I said, have a have a very good role here. They are getting people to invest. But it's you know right at this stage, I think people still want to understand, uh, particularly when you go through choppy choppy periods like this, and they will come again in 10 years' time, you know, that, that people want to have the ability to actually change their strategy or to talk to someone rather than just being in, in, a, in a model, a passive model that they have no connection with or ability mm. to change. Well, Hugo, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, John. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.